0: some things about Marx's personal life and I haven't known just when to insert these remarks and uh, so I'm going to insert them now more or less as preparatory to the lecture and then we'll try to, we'll have a kind of a a base to look back toward uh, to understand I, I think some things about his thinking. You realize that what I'm trying to do is expound his total theory, uh, and not to refute it point by point, but to deal with it as a great system of floating abstractions and to show what the significance of these uh, floating abstractions are so far as uh, voicing a kind of sense of life uh, in our culture. And therefore, I am not indulging in any attempt to refute Marx by tracing his 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 views back to uh, his personal life and saying his personal life was such and such, therefore he was wrong. But I'm going to inject these uh, uh, little details uh, anyway for your delectation. Uh, Marx was the son of a pretty prosperous man who owned land and vineyards and uh, who was a... uh, really what we would today call a classical liberal in his point of view. Marx was one of, I think, nine children. Uh, and uh, his father uh, sent him to the university expecting that he would act responsibly. And very soon thereafter comes the letter from his father, Dear Karl, uh, I can't find you anymore. You're changing your address so often. I know it's probably to avoid your creditors that you're changing your address. I wish you wouldn't get into duels, uh, uh, and I wish you would uh, uh, generally act more responsible about your studies and uh, and uh, not always be uh, carousing at night. Uh, now uh, marx uh, in his last uh, Year at the University of Berlin, he attended. He is known to have attended only two courses. Uh, he then uh, submitted his uh, doctoral dissertation to the University of Jena, which was well known as a diploma mill. Uh, he married uh, Jenny von Westphalen of Westphalia. It actually means uh, a, a noble woman uh, who was directly descended from. Uh, the chief family of the Scottish nobility, the Earls of Argyll, And uh, her uh, family had the silver, the crested silver of the Earls of Argyll, together with their coat of arms and all that. Uh, uh, The expenses for the honeymoon were paid for by Marx's mother-in-law, and he took the big sum of money while he and Joey were honeymooning, Uh, And in one place they stopped. He he had all the money in a box and he opened the box and uh, told all the guests in the hotel they could just come in and help themselves to the money. Uh, So in this way, all the money was uh, depleted uh, and they returned uh, uh, impoverished. Uh, uh, When uh, Marx uh, uh, wrote with Engels the Communist Manifesto, Uh, the manifesto had, in effect, been drawn up in different form uh, by the tiny society called the League of the Just in London. They would moved there from Paris, uh, a tiny society, and they wanted Marx and Engels to sort of uh, polish it up. And actually what they did was to take the original copy and to wait till the last minute and then substitute a completely different copy of their own composition. Uh, So, uh, Engels wrote to Marx saying, I've done it, I've played the terrible trick on Mosey. Mosey was the guy, M-O-S-I, who had given him the original manuscript. Uh, When Marx went to live in London, uh, he uh, lived under very impoverished conditions in a slum apartment on Dean Street in the theater district. You can still see it. There's an Italian restaurant below it. Uh, and uh, very few rooms. Uh, He was living on money that he got mainly from Engels, which Engels was uh, from the surplus value that uh, Engels was sweating out of his employees. Uh, And Marx uh, was buying uh, mostly cigars uh, and... uh, his children actually began to starve. Uh, he lost two or three children by uh, starvation or starvation-related diseases. And on one occasion, uh, he had to pawn his coat in order to buy a coffin for one of his children. Uh, so Marx generally lived the life of a of a parasite all his life long. Um, Perhaps the most interesting example of the parasitism is this. Um, When uh, Mrs. Marx was pregnant, uh, she was far along in her pregnancy, suddenly... uh, They had a maid, by the way, even though they lived in this slum apartment. Suddenly the maid became pregnant too. Uh, Marx being the father... Uh, so Marx then dispatched a letter to Engels. I, I just ran across this myself by accident before I saw any mention of it in secondary sources. There's a collected correspondence between them to Friedrich Engels, who was his, his uh, source of support. You see, Marx was afraid that his wife would be angry. So the letter goes like this. Dear Fred, I have news for you about yourself. You get it? He wanted Engels to assume the paternity of the child, uh, so that Mrs. Marx wouldn't be <laughs> wouldn't be angry. Uh, a clear case of uh, a socialist not wanting credit for his physical productivity. <laughs> uh, 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 uh. The child, uh, Engels assumed, obediently assumed the responsibility. And the, 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 the child, Freddie DeMuth, his name was, D-E-M-U-T-H, Freddie DeMuth, uh, was born and uh, adopted by a working-class family uh, and uh, brought up as Engels' son. He thought apparently all his life that Engels was his father and uh, Engels uh, insisted on correcting the point uh, on his deathbed, when he told Marx's daughter that it was really Marx who was the father of Freddie, uh, Marx, uh, uh, Marx and his wife inherited some money finally from their uh, from his wife's family, and they moved to better quarters. But even so, they were in trouble, and he kept pawning uh, the uh, silver of the Dukes of, Ar- of the Earls of Argyll. Uh, and about getting them back again. He had to pawn his coat sometimes. Uh, Meanwhile, he was European correspondent for the New York Tribune. I should mention that fact as well. Uh, And he was trying to raise a little bit of money that way. And finally, they came into a spot of money and they gave a formal ball with liveried servants. Believe it or not, they blew it all. (laughs) just like that. So they were always bouncing back and forth between an extremely impoverished life uh, and uh, a life of, a, of uh, assumed aristocratic tastes. Well I'm going to come back to the significance of some of these things uh, later on. I'm going to begin the, the lecture now, uh, so you won't... I'm I saying I'm beginning the lecture now so you won't say that it was the material was out of context. Now. At the, at, at, the, at, the, at the end of the Middle Ages, uh, it, feudalism, of course, uh, came to its own end, and the conditions arrived which made the emergence of capitalism possible. The new geographical discoveries, according to Marx, now this is Marx's account, The new geographical discoveries opened up distant markets and caused the demand for commodities to rise. At the very moment of the rise in demand, new material forces of production arrived on the scene. There were owners of capital and owners of labor power. The owners of labor power were dispossessed peasants driven off their lands by the enclosure movement. Uh, by the suppression of the monasteries, and so on. And so, therefore, armies of vagabonds were let loose. Enraged they took to becoming thieves and highwaymen. Their deeds were answered by whipping them into the wage system by bloody and horrible legislation against vagabondage. You see, he's trying to establish capitalism really started by force. Um, This total process he calls the expropriation of the many and the enrichment of the few. Two classes of commodity possessors now faced each other. The owners of capital, that is the instruments of production and money capital, eager to hire wage labor, and the owners of labor power, eager to sell it for a wage. These are the fundamental conditions of capitalism. Uh, Factories and instruments of production is one commodity. Labor power is another commodity. Now, one of capitalism's distinguishing marks, according to Marx, uh, one of its distinguishing marks, setting it off from slavery and feudalism, is that the worker is now, quote, free, unquote. You see, the slave doesn't make a contract with his slave owner, nor does the serf make a contract with the landowner. But the worker makes a contract with uh, the employer. But to use Hegelian language again, this freedom is only an appearance, and you've got to penetrate below into the essence to see what is really going on. When you penetrate below into the essence, you will see that the, the worker is actually forced, physically forced. How so? Because if he does not accept the wage contract, he starves. His legal freedom, therefore, consists in the freedom to starve if he does not accept the wage contract. This control over the worker is exercised by the employer because of the employer's antecedent accumulation of capital, which puts one party to the wage contract to such a disadvantage that he is faced with an offer that he cannot refuse. Now, I'm coming to the second topic up on the board there, the aim of Marx's economic theory. It's designed to prove four things. One, that although on the surface, capitalism appears to be based on free relations among men, it is really a form of oppression. Secondly, that although on the surface it seems to be liberating, it is really alienating. Everybody got that now? Shall I repeat? I repeat the two of them? Uh, Capitalism, there are four uh, bad... Marxist theory is intended to prove four basic things about capitalism. First, that although on the surface it appears to be based on free relations among men. It is really a form of oppression. Secondly, that although on the surface it seems to be liberating, it is really alienating. That's just what the Soviets say about our system. Now you say the so-called free countries. Thirdly, that it is nevertheless the most productive form of economic organization that has yet appeared. See, he says that in the Communist Manifesto. It is nevertheless the most productive form of economic organization that has yet yet appeared. Fourth, that it contains within itself the seeds of its own destruction. It will, therefore, finally break down because of conflicts built into its very nature. Now I'm going to be dealing largely with some basic theses set forth in the first volume of Das Kapital for a few minutes. Um, He makes a distinction between product and commodity. A product is anything produced by man. Uh, A uh, commodity uh, is produced uh, in order to uh, sell or to barter All commodities have to combine use value with exchange value. They have to have some use. Uh, But then there is the exchange value they have, which is the capacity to command other products in exchange. The analysis of use value is simple. It is the way in which a product satisfies a need or desire and it is demonstrable in terms of its uh, natural properties. Uh, For instance, uh, this cup, you see, uh, has certain natural properties which permit it to hold water. If it did not have the natural properties, no one would ever buy it as a cup, at least. Exchange value is, however, a more complicated concept. The exchange value of a commodity is the proportion in which it exchanges with other commodities. You see, so many cups for so many sweaters, uh, for so many uh, lipsticks or something like that, for so many uh, compasses, for so many uh, brain surgeons, uh, necessary instruments and so on, uh, for so many copies of Das Kapital. Uh, the exchange value, therefore, is the proportion in which it exchanges for other commodities. This is a quantitative relation. So much iron is exchanged for so much corn. On the average, in barring special circumstances, commodities of one type will exchange for commodities of another type in a definite proportion. If so, there must be something about the one which can be compared with something about the other and compared quantitatively. The two commodities, in other words, must be commensurable, co-measurable with respect to a certain property. This property cannot be a natural property like the whiteness of the cup or the geometrical shape of the cup for it is... It is not geometrical, it is not physical, it is not chemical. There's only one property left over, and this is the labor that went into producing the commodity. To clarify the method of his argument, Marx uses the illustration that we compare areas of rectangles by decomposing them into triangles, and then expressing the areas of triangles by half the product of the base into the altitude. Marx's point is that in comparing the areas of geometrical figures, we abstract from their visual appearance and reduce them to underlying quantitative relations. So in the same way, the price or exchange value of a commodity is a mere, quote, mere market appearance, unquote, that is intelligible only in terms of an underlying essence, which Marx calls real value, or simply value with a capital V. This underlying value must bear to the actual price at least a rough relation, uh, 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 such as the geometrical equation bears to the visual appearance of the geometrical shape. Now, what relation can this be? It must be something like rough variation in direct proportion. But Marx tells us we must be very careful in our use of the term labor. We don't mean any one type of labor, like the labor of a watchmaker or a weaver. We don't mean any concrete bit of labor, because you can't compare the labor of the watchmaker with the uh, labor of the weaver. We do not mean concrete labor. We must mean abstract labor, a concept which leaves out the qualitative differences between weaving and watchmaking, you see, but retains the quantitative differences. Now, in terms of what dimension can all labor from weaving to watchmaking be measured quantitatively, do you suppose? Hours, time, yes. There's your quantitative relation. Obviously, says Marx, duration. Duration. More duration, more labor, more value. Now, this does not mean he immediately qualifies in the first few pages of Capital. This does not mean that by slowing up you can increase the value of your product. The labor time to which the labor time to which uh, uh, Marx is referring is what he calls, and this is a very vital phrase in his his whole theory. Quote: socially necessary labor time. Unquote. Socially necessary labor time, unquote. And I'm, I'm here making a short quote from Marx himself. Quote, the labor time socially necessary is that required to produce an article under the normal conditions of production and with the average degree of skill and intensity prevalent at the time. Taking into account all the machines and everything like that, unquote. If the prevailing conditions of production are those of the hand loom, my hand loom, my labor time will approach the average in value and my products exchange accordingly. But let everyone else get a power loom and let me continue to produce on my hand loom. I may work for one full hour, but the work I put in is worth only half an hour of socially necessary labor. I will have half as many lengths of cloth to exchange. This holds as long as I compare the lengths of cloth I produce with the lengths lengths of cloth produced by everyone else. But meanwhile, the introduction of the power loom would reduce the value of lengths of cloth in general compared to the value of the commodities in whose production a similar technological improvement did not occur. Quote, the value of a commodity varies directly as the quantity and inversely as the productiveness of the labor incorporated in it. Well, you may ask, what about skilled labor? Remember, with the business of the brain surgeon and the possibility of doing your own brain surgery. What about skilled labor? Is that no more valuable than unskilled labor performed in the same amount of time under the same conditions? You know the story about the surgeon who presented a brain surgeon who presented a bill of a thousand dollars to the patient, and the patient said, What, a thousand dollars for uh, simply making a little, a little slit in the brain? And he said, He said, one dollar for making the slit, nine hundred and ninety nine for knowing where to make it. <laughs> so, now, that's the problem, you see. What about skilled labor? Is that no more valuable than unskilled labor performed in the same amount of time under the same conditions? Do we measure all labor in time from broom pushing to brain surgery? Marx's solution, in quotes, is as follows. Quote, Skilled labor counts only as multiplied simple labor. It's, unquote, it's almost as, as if you thought of uh, a carpenter sort of sawing your brain for a long time and you measured that against the skilled labor performed by the instrument. Uh, uh, Or, uh, well... uh, (laughs) A given quantity of skilled labor being considered equal to a greater quantity A given quantity of skilled labor being considered equal to a greater quantity of simple labor. The different proportions in which different sorts of labor are reduced to unskilled labor as their standard are established by a social process that goes on behind the backs of the producers and consequently appears to be fixed by custom. For simplicity's sake, we shall henceforth account every kind of labor to be unskilled, simple labor, unquote. Thus, in the attempt to discover what it is that governs the relative prices of commodities, Marx hits upon the solution that the standard is what the least skilled man will give up, everything else being ranked as a multiple of this. What he gives up is time doing what he doesn't want to do, Well, he gives up time doing what he really wants to do, and instead he does what he doesn't want to do, labor time. This has been the typical tribute to reality paid daily by the average man. Products have always been distributed one way or another in society. Now, this is an important point. Products have always been distributed one way or another in society. But in primitive society... They have been distributed in terms of their use values alone. Production in primitive society was for use. Ever since the breakup of primitive society, products have been distributed as commodities, that is, in terms of their exchange value. This exchange value uh, has varied. It is very directly with the average unskilled labor time embodied in them, and therefore in a commodity exchange, uh, a society uh, uh, arranges for a certain pattern of distribution. In each state of society, this law of value, as Marx calls it, will have a different form governed by the social relations of production, and the science of economics consists and working out how the law of value operates in each case. Now, we've seen that commodities have a tendency to exchange according to the unskilled, average, socially necessary labor they embody. Even so, there is something unnatural about a commodity produced for exchange and not for use. Where do you suppose Marx got that doctrine, that there's something sort of... It's a kind of a, as Archie Bunker would call it, a preversion to to, ex- to to produce for for commodity exchange rather than for use. Where do you suppose that doctrine came from? Now, Aristotle. Ah, uh, Aristotle, Politics, Book Book One, Chapter Nine. Quote. Uh, Of everything that we possess, there are two uses. One is the proper use, and the other the improper use. For example, a shoe is used for wear. That's the proper use. And it is used for exchange. That is the improper use. He who gives a shoe in exchange for money or food to him who wants one does indeed use the shoe as a shoe, but this is not its proper use. For a shoe is not made to be an object of barter. A shoe is not made to be an object of barter, unquote. And it was largely on the basis of this that Aristotle formulated his famous doctrine that when you lend money at interest, that is something unnatural because it's not like lending a cow where the cow can produce some calves. You see, the money doesn't really do anything. It just sits there. Now, just why Aristotle thought that uh, is something which perhaps we can come back to later. Marx maintains that exchange value is unnatural because unlike use value, it does not reside in the natural properties of the thing, like geometrical properties or physical properties, but it resides in the social relations of production. At the simplest level, you and I have put the same amount of labor time into hunting for two animals like a deer and a beaver. He got this example from Adam Smith. Therefore, it would be a fair exchange. Even in such a non-exploitative exchange, you see, we have risen above the perceptual level and are thinking, but we're thinking subjectively because property relations have been established. We're thinking subjectively about social relations between men. That is, you own it, I don't own it, I work for you, you own the instruments of production, and so on. So that now, uh, value, economic value, assumes, quote, the fantastic form of a relation between things, unquote. It doesn't... There's no real relation between the shoe and the bread, but it's just some fantasy that we have in our head. You see, we're above the perceptual level because we're in fantasy now. Now, commodities, because their relation to each other and to men is on the conceptual level, Marx uh, compares to religious objects, and that's why he speaks of the fetishism of commodities, because in our thinking uh, we have risen above the perceptual level. Now, in capitalist society, exchange value is treated as a real attribute of products. Virtually all production is for exchange, and virtually everybody engages in exchange. When products are generally produced for exchange, the value relations between them become established. So many uh, meters of linen for so many grams of gold, and so on. Finally, the relative value magnitudes become fixed, Any commodity has a value relation to each of the others. If this commodity is used to express the value of all the others, it becomes money. And if it can be recognized universally, it becomes the supreme power among commodities, the supreme fetish. Now, I'm going to say a few words about the larger philosophical significance of all this still... Uh, uh, penetrating, I, I hope, more deeply into the significance of the labor theory value. Uh, I believe it lies in this. Marx believed that all commodity production imposed a sacrifice and that this sacrifice ultimately came down to labor under alienating conditions. Men sought to avoid this sacrifice by seizing control of the means of production and forcing others to work for them. They didn't want to work with their hands, you see. The ensuing property relations of production resulted in each society in a characteristic distribution of goods which could be expressed in terms of the prices at which they exchanged. But all the prices originally came down to labor, the original sweat, Capitalism was the most sensational and efficient method of avoiding sweat, which is what exploitation is. Capitalism is the most sensational and efficient method of exploitation because it led to an ever greater creation of extra value, or what we will call surplus value. But the allocation of all value under capitalism was chaotic because it was based on individual decisions rather than on centralized rational planning. And this led capitalism into deeper and deeper crises. You see, Marx thinks that when we come to commodity production, we have to be rational. But since it is not a basic property of the individual to be rational, the individual, when he goes about trying to buy and sell, will naturally act irrationally. And so you will have all these little, you and I, we're the centers of irrationality, exchanging at all these irrational values. But since only society as a whole can think rationally, we need to establish a centralized economic plan, which will be worked out by some social power. You see? So that this again comes back to the concept of species being, that man is rational, only uh, as a species, only collectively and not as an individual. Individual decisions, therefore, are chaotic. They cannot be truly rational because thinking at the individual level is some sort of fantasy about fetishes, a bigger car, a bigger house, a bigger swimming pool or something like that. Now, to understand what capitalism is, let us, uh, by way of contrast, look at the simple self-employed manufacturer in some uh, pre-capitalist economy, say that he is a potter. He owns the means of production, his potter's wheel, and his raw material. He produces pots, a commodity which we will call C, capital C now. In order to get money, M, he wants the money in order to buy commodities like food so that under pre-capitalist conditions the direction of exchange is cmc he enters the market with his commodity he gets paid and he buys something else by contrast the capitalist enters the money with enters <laughs> enters the market with money he uses the money as a factor in the production of commodities and then sells the commodities for more money than he has invested. This whole process can be expressed by money, creation of commodities, M-prime, gets more money out of it. The difference between M and M-prime is what Marx calls surplus value. The original money that is used to generate more money is known as capital. Surplus value, he thinks, takes three basic forms. I'm going to run over this very quickly. It's necessary for clarification. Interest, rent, and profit. This came from uh, the uh, classical economists. The interest goes to the banker. The rent goes for land and equipment. What remains is profit or unowed surplus value. So, therefore, M prime is uh, M prime minus interest plus rent uh, uh, plus uh, any other expenses uh, equals M2. Two. M2 two is what happens after the capitalist has paid his debt out of M prime. M2 is, pr- is his product, profit right. M2 is his profit. If M2 is greater than M, capital has accumulated. When invested, the new capital accumulates further surplus value. The defining goal of capitalism is the accumulation of ever greater surplus value. Profits are generated from production in capitalism. The capitalist does not simply resell the commodities he's bought there must be one commodity that he has bought that generates surplus value. And this commodity is labor power, Arbeitskraft, labor power. The set of capabilities that a human being has whom he employs. If money is a super or supreme commodity, labor power is the... Commodity beyond which no other commodity can be pr- uh, conceived. For it is only by purchasing labor power that money can act as capital. And it is only by the use of labor power already bought for a wage that capital can be accumulated. Now exploitation exists in all societies above the primitive level. It is not confined to capitalism. See, the slave has his labor exploited. The, the, the master takes everything the slave produces and then the slave gets his, uh, his board and room or his bread and water or something like that. And likewise, the feudal serf works Monday and Tuesday for himself and then all the other days of the week he gives surplus value to the Lord. But exploitation in the pre-capitalist societies uh, all differ profoundly... Uh, from the capitalist mode of exploitation. First, in the pre-capitalist societies, use values still predominate over exchange values. Therefore, quote, surplus labor will be limited by a given set of wants. The slave owner is not going to drive that slave too far. And so there was no tendency to work the Greek slave or the medieval serf to death, with one exception, the gold and silver mines, where the object was precisely to produce exchange value and not use value. However, under capitalism, there is by definition a thirst for creating more and more surplus value. Greed. Marx, this is this is the actual term used by Marx in Das Kapital. Moneybags is driven by thirst for surplus value. Therefore, he works his employees as far as he can, short of killing them. Unlike the slave owner, see, this is why capitalism is, in a way, worse than slavery. How much of a way depends on whether you're an employer or a worker. Capitalism is worse than its predecessors. However, it's also better in another sense, in that by creating a greater social product and a greater efficiency in production, it adds to the possibilities, it adds to the comforts of life for us all. Now, here's a contradiction The contradiction between the efficiency of capitalism and its cruel slavery, which must be solved dialectically. And how do we solve things dialectically? We solve them by force on the field of history, not by argument. Now, there's another contrast. In pre-capitalist societies, the relation between servant and master is established by naked force. Then it's worked out in social rules, rules of status, Uh, defining mutual obligations. As a serf or as a slave, you always know where you stand and how much of your labor is being appropriated by the master. Also, the master has social obligations to the serf or slave to look out for his health or his old age. Holy days and saints' days abound. Everyone gets off work on holy days regardless of economic considerations. In capitalism, on the other hand, we have a society not of status, but of contract. Both parties are theoretically, legally equal. The worker sells his labor power at so much per hour, the employer directs the use of the labor power as he will. After the whistle blows, the worker is, quote, his own boss, unquote. As for the employer, he has no obligation to the worker. He would be glad to take away all holy days if he could. Bah, humbug. You see now where Dickens was coming from. He he had the pre-capitalist orientation. Uh, in In the wage transaction, the capitalist does not buy the labor, does not buy the labor of the worker. If he did, his offer would go like this. Here is some wood and some phosphorus fashion these raw materials into so many matches and I will give you eight dollars. Now, under what conditions would this contract be just? Well, just means equal. If eight dollars is equal to the value added by the labor, then eight dollars is what the capitalist justly owes to the worker. However, no capitalist would be stupid enough to make such a contract, for he would make no profit. A capitalist, therefore, does not contract for labor. Instead, he contracts for labor power, Arbeitskraft. He makes the following offer to the worker. Quote, I wish to buy your labor power for eight hours. I will employ it as I wish. In return, I will give you eight dollars. Why eight dollars? Because eight dollars will purchase the food, the clothing, and the shelter necessary to keep the worker alive, keep him at subsistence level. It is enough to reproduce the same labor power the following day. It represents the congealed labor in that food, clothing, and shelter, and as such, it is the true value of the labor power, the market value of the labor power. The worker then accepts the capitalist's offer, and he goes to work. After four hours, he notices he has added to the raw materials enough value to equal the amount of money necessary for his daily sustenance. He is ready to pick up his check and go home. But strangely, the whistle does not blow. The capitalist explains to him, Look, fellow, I bought your labor power to employ for eight hours. That is why I am called an employer. It is the right to employ that I bought, not a specific amount of value to be added by your labor. In return for the hire of your labor power, I'm giving you a price sufficient to be ready for work tomorrow when we can start again." Unquote. Now, on whose side is Marx in this dispute? Well, Marx says that on the issue of justice, he is on the side of the employer. What the capitalist does to the worker, Marx says, is, quote, quote, "...nicht ein Urrecht, not an injustice." Unquote. Had he refused to pay him at all, or had he paid him at less than a subsistence level, that would have been an injustice in this narrow sense of injustice. What is just and what is not just is, from the standpoint of Marxist philosophy always determined by the social relations of production existing in a given society. Now, does not Marx then denounce capitalism morally? Does he not again and again call it robbery? The answer is quite revealing. Marx says this in one sentence, in one sentence. The capitalist, quote, does not merely rob but he earns the surplus value with full right, that is, the right corresponding to this mode of production, Unquote. Now, when Marx uh, is calling the capitalists robbers, he's not denouncing them as uh, do- performing an injustice in the ordinary accepted sense of injustice. The truth is that Marx believes that robbery is a regular social relation of production determined by the stage of development of the productive powers at the time. For Marx, force in human relations is quite normal and quite natural. Capitalism is just the cleverest form of robbery that has yet come along, and it's so exceedingly clever because it's disguised. Well, then. Isn't Marx against capitalism? Isn't he always denouncing it? Yes, but not on grounds of formal ethics as unjust, rather on the metaphysical grounds that it is alienating. Now, of course, the way in which Marxism is ordinarily presented and was ordinarily presented in his popular works by Marx and others uh, involved a shifting of ground. They propagandized and they appealed to commonly accepted the standards of justice. Now I'm going on to the fatal contradictions in capitalism. Capitalism generates its own destruction. It's based on three fatal contradictions. Three fatal contradictions. One, the ever-expanding development of the forces of production calls for a policy of conscious, collectively planned production for use for the benefit of society as a whole. Because the forces of production are expanding, we need a more rational mode of organizing our property relations. But this is incompatible with production for exchange and for private gain. That's the first Fatal Contradiction The second fatal contradiction is that capitalism's productive forces call more and more for socialized production No longer are there individual craftsmen working in their cottages only workers on the assembly line The raising of capital itself has become collectivized and its use centralized in large corporations Thus the material forces of production now in capitalist society are collectivistic, but the property relations are private and this private property concept Marx thinks has come down from feudalism so it 's a leftover it 's a leftover it 's a remnant of feudalism and it comes into contact with Collectivistic material modes of production. The essence of capitalism is therefore a mixture of collectivism and feudalism. And they are in contradiction to each other. The social relations of production remain private. Therefore, control of production and the appropriation of profits remain private. Third basic contradiction. Between the... Or- Now get this, this is very important. Between the organization in the factory and the organization of outside society, there is a contradiction. Within the factory, there is centralized planning of a systematic, almost Prussian military order. Marx admires this, you see, this Prussian organization. But outside In society, there's the chaos of the stock exchange. Oh, I forgot to tell you before that Marx was taking the money Engels was giving him and instead of spending it on foods for his kids, he was speculating on the New York stock exchange uh, uh, as well as buying cigars. Uh, Outside in society, there is no planned apportionment of resources to meet social needs. Nor is there any orderly relation between firms. Such as you get, Dr. Shenfield pointed out, during wartime. Each capitalist produces what he chooses. He makes this individual irrational decision, you see. And then he embarks on a mad search for markets. Chaos reigns. It is the Hobbesian war of all against all. Every man is a wolf to every man. Dog eat dog. Now... These individualistic social relations... Now, he's going to make a concession. You see, he's got all these contradictions and he's rolling them around. Uh, explaining, imagine him explaining it to Engels now. These individualistic social relations, Fred, first did, they did energize the forces of production. But in time, the latent contradictions reveal themselves. Now, the three contradictions we have just summarized summarized, generate three fatal diseases that will inevitably bring capitalism to its death. The falling rate of profit, the misery of the workers, and the ever-deepening periodic uh, crises. Now, uh, I assume that... uh, I'm not going to go into this uh, in uh, any detail except to mention the misery of the workers. Due to their relations. The misery of the workers comes due to their relation to the machines. Uh, The lengthening of the working day, the latter is caused not only by the employer's attempt to extract extra surplus value, but due to his awareness that idle machines detract from his profit and undergo depreciation. So he tries to keep uh, uh, edging up on on the working day. New machinery causes unemployment. Under capitalism, the machine is uh, the enemy of the worker. Now, furthermore, uh, Marx thought that some of the time there's going to be a tendency toward the absolute impoverishment of the worker. The condition of the worker is growing uh, worse and worse as capitalism proceeds. But all the empirical facts went against this. And Marx changed his tune as time went on. And he talked, therefore, of the relative impoverishment of the workers. Uh, He says that the time comes when the worker gets richer and he uh, he builds a nice little mansion. But his employer shoots up a palace right next to it. And this agonizes him. It makes him sick and he sues for... Uh, 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 psychological damages, you say, because of this. So this relative impoverishment of the workers uh, is uh, another uh, fundamental aspect of uh, capitalism. Now, uh, since I have a few minutes left, I'm going to start on the concept of revolution. Marx believes that revolution uh, uh, is the, the only means by which change can come about. Marx approached revolution first from the standpoint of Hegelian philosophy. A revolution means a change that is radical and that occurs over a relatively short time. The revolution occurs as the result of tensions, which uh, uh, Hegel and Marx call contradictions, uh, tensions which slowly accumulate over a much longer period of time. The accumulation of tensions is incremental and quantitative. Like if I start pushing that sweater, you see, one, two, three, four, it's accumulating quantitatively. Then comes the revolution. Uh, a, 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 a sudden a sudden qualitative change appears. The maid is pregnant, or something like that. <laughs> uh, an, example, an example of such a revolutionary change in the field of nature is the freezing of water. Uh, at 10 degrees centigrade, water has the quality of being liquid. Then the temperature is lowered by quantitative increments. Hotness and coldness contradict and struggle with one another. <laughs> the coldness gradually increasing... Suddenly there is a radical change and we have a new state of matter. Ice. Natural change is thus of two kinds, uh, quantitative change and qualitative change. Revolution is a qualitative change. Prior to the revolution, there's a struggle between contradictory historical forces and then there's incremental change and then a sudden revolution and we have a new form of society. Well, within our present society, there are contradictory elements between the material forces of production and the social relations of production. As we have said, the material forces of production are collectivistic, but the social relations are individualistic. The capitalists have gathered many men and machines together in gigantic manufacturing plants This produces a greater and greater collectivistic consciousness or class solidarity among the workers who are looking back and forth and saying, it's us against them, here comes the speed up, and so forth and so on. And so you see, under capitalism, uh, uh, you have this change to a greater and greater uh, collectivism. Now, even so, the workers don't quite get it. I mean, they get together collectively for such paltry things as rises in wages and shorter hours and so forth. But come middle-class intellectuals into the situation, alienated middle-class intellectuals like Marx, and he can, quote, raise their consciousness, unquote. That's a basic Marxist phrase, to raise their consciousness to show them how these, uh, they ought not to just strike for higher wages or something like that, but they should change the whole thing. Now, the social relations of production, as I said, are individualistic. They are inherited from a free capitalistic age into which the mean, in which the means of production were individually owned and worked. Capitalism, therefore, for Marx, is a contradictory system whose very nature requires that it be collectively owned and therefore transformed into socialism. The result of this contradiction is a revolution resulting in a society whose, whose means of production are collective in nature and collectively owned. This is socialism. Socialism is the politico economic system uniquely suited to the industrial age. It will be succeeded by another, higher system, which eventually came to be called communism, which in its turn will be uniquely suited to the still more productive society brought about by socialism. Well, what about the actual details of the revolution? First, the situation must ripen by the accumulation of contradictions in capitalism until they finally explode in a great economic crisis. Secondly, comes the revolution. It must be by a seizure of political power. Some revolutions in the past were not characterized by a seizure of political power. power. For instance, the transition from slavery to feudalism. But in such cases, old forms had broken down and new ones took their place. But when governments are strong and efficient, like nowadays in the 19th century, seizure must take place. An example is the capitalist revolution against the absolute monarchies. Here a new class, the bourgeoisie, a historically anointed class, the messiah, you say, the social messiah, rose in revolution and in wave after wave overcame the absolute monarchs in the glorious revolution of 1688 in England, in the American Revolution, and the French Revolution. How did the bourgeoisie ever manage this? They were motivated by their own selfish interests, but also they were serving as agents for everybody who felt oppressed by the old order, the peasants and the city proletariat. The bourgeoisie were, to a degree, a universal class, a stand-in for all humanity. They established liberal democracy, but then they used liberal democracy as a screen to oppress the, class, the other classes, especially the proletariat. Now the hour of the proletariat has struck. The proletariat are completely impoverished by capitalism. They have nothing to lose. It is therefore in their selfish interest to rise in revolution. But the proletariat are the most collectivistic of all classes. They want a society without classes. Their thrust is toward economic equality, not just legal equality, as was the case with the bourgeoisie. The proletariat is, in a sense, the collective counterpart of Hegel's hero in history, whom the cunning of reason has chosen to bring about great historical change for his own selfish interests, to be sure, but on a deeper level for reason's own reasons. As Marx sees it, the proletariat acts for all mankind to bring about the classless society and the proletariat thus liquidates itself. By what means will the revolution be brought about? Basically, Marx and Engels had two scenarios, uh, that the proletarian movement uh, is the self-conscious independent movement of the immense majority in a certain country. The first scenario involved a forceful seizure of power setting aside the existing legal processes. The second uh, scenario applied to countries uh, whose institutions, customs, and traditions were like England and the United States, where if the working class were to gain a majority in Parliament or Congress, then it could, and I'm quoting from Marx now, it could by legal means set aside the laws and structures that stood in its way. Of course, such a development, quoting from Marx again, can only remain peaceful as long as it is not opposed by the violence of those who wield power in society at that time. Addressing the governments of the world, he said, you are the armed power that is directed against the proletary. We will proceed against you by peaceful means where that is possible and with arms when it is necessary it is quite clear that whichever scenario occurs, there will be a forcible seizure of the instruments of production remaining in private hands. This will be done by the government that is now being run by the proletariat. In Marx's words, quote, the expropriators will be expropriated, unquote. Any resistance in the name of allegedly inalienable rights will be labeled counter-revolutionary, and suppressed by violence, by a full reign of terror if necessary. The revolution, then, consists of the proletariats gaining control by whatever means of the state apparatus, confiscating and nationalizing the means of production and putting down by force uh, any resistance. Thank you. Questions? Bob? Yes,
1: uh, I have a question about uh, Aristotle's uh, idea about shoes that could be worn, but not to be used for barter. He made a comment that uh, there was some uh, some reason for his taking this particular position. comment on that?
0: Yes. Uh, Aristotle, uh, in his time. I think I have a question. Yes, I think I better. Repeat the quote. Why did Aristotle regard... Why did Aristotle regard production for exchange as unnatural, whereas he regarded production for use as natural? I think the reason was that Aristotle simply could not conceive a... Great social system with highly abstract interrelations. That is to say, he was actually operating uh, closer to the perceptual level in the atmosphere of the of the Greek city state and uh, therefore he did not he did not actually uh, think this thing out when he said that they, when when he said that money lent uh, it does not do anything. Uh, he didn't see the possibility of money actually producing more money the way a cow will produce calves. Uh, And uh, Aristotle's thought was simply not far-ranging enough uh, at this point. And I think this is generally true of his political thought. That's why we we have the very term politics. It comes from palace, a small community or city-state. And that's why Aristotle's political and also his ethical thought is, in my opinion, uh, so inferior to the basic foundations which he laid down in his logic, his epistemology, and his metaphysics. He didn't apply his own principles, he just sort of started all over again within the social context in which he lived. that help? Yes. Else? Yes. What was the the basis that Marx provided for the transition from the feudal society to the capitalist society? uh, uh, Yes, what was the basis which Marx provided for the transition from the feudal society uh, to the capitalist society? He mentioned many different factors, one of which was the discovery of new wealth in the uh, Indies and in America, another of which was the enclosure system, by which common land was enclosed in order to raise sheep for the new sheep industry. Uh, And uh, therefore, uh, what he was trying to do was to show that capitalism uh, started by force. That is, the original accumulation of capitalism was not by the industrious abstinence saver, so to speak, but by one man robbing another. Now, I don't know all the details of economic history, or I'm unable to answer this in, in uh, any great detail, such as a trained economic historian would be. But it is, of course, true that the... It's true almost by definition that the accumulation of capital preceding capitalism would have to be by, by non-capitalistic methods. You see? I mean, you, that's the way they were doing things then. And so this is, is one part of the answer that I would certainly give to Marx, that capitalism just had to start at a certain point. But that didn't mean, of course, that saving and all the rest didn't come into uh, uh, operation at the same time. yes.
1: Um regard to Marxist laboratory value, you think that the uh still labor is worth a multiple or more than the unstilled labor due to the fact that it's um why is that? Is it is that because of past labor is that they put into an easier
0: well it's uh it's uh like a, a vacuum cleaner to uh, say a robot vacuum cleaner compared to a janitor pushing a, a broom, the robot uh, vacuum cleaner, uh, will uh, uh, add within a very short time to the situation what the, the, uh, the janitor would take a long time to add. And he thinks that everything can be measured in that way, that the more complex can be uh, reduced to what he thinks is the more simple. Now, obviously, if you try to apply that to brain surgery, you'd see that before the skill you didn't have anything at all. You didn't have just carpenters <laughs> sawing people's skulls. Uh, and then later on we got brain surgeons. I mean, this is, in my opinion, an absurd uh, uh, theory. Uh, kind of, It's what Ayn Rand called muscle mysticism. Muscle mysticism, saying that all true labor is, is unskilled labor. He wanted to reduce it to a common denominator, ultimately sweat and discomfort. And indeed, some capitalist thinkers have uh, likewise treated the nature of of labor. Marx is not the only one who did this. Yes?
1: One of the contradictions of capitalism was to said, the production forces become collective. The productive...
0: You're asking... The question is... What did I mean when I said that under capitalism the productive forces have become collectivized? Formerly, craftsmen, according to Marx, used to work by themselves spinning in their little cottages, you see. They were in their homes. Then along comes the capitalist and he builds this big shed called a factory and he brings them all together and he uh, brings, adds the machines and so forth and so on. So now it's not a matter of one craftsman having to walk ten miles to consult with the other craftsman about getting together and forcing a rise in wages. They can talk to each other at the machines around the assembly line so that the actual forces of production uh, become collectivized and this in turn creates a kind of class consciousness, a collectivized class consciousness on the part of the workers. This gentleman. Do
1: you know how Marx worked personally? Uh, did he have a systematic plan of action for his writings, or did he just have to put out another tract every time he was on
0: He wrote and he wrote and he wrote. Uh, sometimes, the question, is, the question is how did Marx write? Did he have a? Did he have a plan for his writing? Did he Was he goal-directed? Did he systematize his writing? Well, I'll just have to tell you how unsystematic he was and how badly he conceived his goals and the length of time that it would take to, uh, uh, to gain them. Um, it took him decades to produce the whole of Das Kapital. When he told... Uh, his friends about it how fast he would uh, uh, he, he would uh, write as copy dial he said quote I'll have all this economic shit written in five weeks unquote so perhaps that's understand that yes what you said
1: that he conceded eventually was there a change? He conceded eventually that capitalism worked to make the workers richer, but the problem was envy. The problem was that some people actually got real rich, and that was that was the default. Did he concede that the workers at the end, the workers actually got better off, the should have been fine? But the real problem was ended.
0: Did Marx concede that the workers? Get better off, absolutely. Did he concede that? Eventually, he came to concede that. At first, he had other theories. Did he see that envy was a bad thing? What Marxist would ever regard envy as a vice? Uh, No. Uh, he, uh, he, He saw the envy as being justified because he had an egalitarian standard of value operating in the back of his mind. He had... The concept of the unearned uh, uh, as his basic uh, uh, standard of value—you should get, you should get what you need, not what you earn.
1: Could you comment on uh, the the style of uh, Marxian polemics, the one adopted too by Trotsky, Lenin, Stalin, and others? What I mean is the use of derogatory terms like dogs of capitalism.
0: Could I comment on the present Marxist-Leninist use of terms like dogs of capitalism in contrast to what?
1: style that
0: was started by Marx? style of It was abusive. Uh, well, my comments would become increasingly abusive as I, as I, as I elaborated Uh, Professor Reisman.
1: I'd like to know where did Marx see that capitalism actually raises the standard of of living. Because isn't that the main issue between the Orthodox Marxists and the revisionists?
0: The, uh, later on... uh, Where did Marx say this? Now, the answer is I can't give you a citation right off, but I think that in... One of his letters, he said this, but he never developed it as built into his theory. Uh, and uh, it was Edward Bernstein, uh, the great revisionist thinker, that later said Marx was systematically wrong about this. And perhaps you'd like... Uh, I didn't go into the whole business of the, the, uh, the army of the unemployed, the reserve army of the unemployed, unfortunately, which is of some importance...
1: Published ideas. No, it was never part of
0: Marx's published ideas, but he did say either they are absolutely impoverished or they are relatively impoverished. He did say that in Capital, that the mansion of the, uh, of the uh, worker goes up and beside it there shoots up the palace of the employer. And say that was another another example of the impoverishment of the worker.
1: Talking about absolute impoverishment. And uh find that if the capitalists could, they not only wait the working day, but could substitute potatoes for wheat bread. Oh, there's,
0: uh, there's no doubt that, but, uh, but your reading of it is that he did, had no doctrine of relative impoverishment which he ever published. Do I understand you correctly? Well, I maybe mean, that's a thrill,
1: The main thrust huh? is absolute impoverishment. Absolute. That's right. The
0: main trust is absolute impoverishment. That's correct. Perhaps I didn't emphasize that strongly enough, but the other one is just just a kind of afterthought, which later the revisionists uh, made the real thing. Yes? Uh,
1: which, which is the uh, most influential, prominent uh, modern Marxist doctrine, the idea that the, the poor actually get poorer, or that they're relatively empowered psychologically?
0: Well, in the advanced industrial countries, you have the fat, corrupted worker, you say, uh, who has been bribed by shorter hours and better working conditions and so on. (laughs) But meanwhile, the capitalists have moved out their operations into countries which have no minimum wage laws and so forth and so on. And the real terrible oppression is going on there. Would that answer the question?
1: Now, that which, with these two viewpoints that you and I recently discussing, the absolute impoverishment of the is the most influential view espoused by Marxists
0: today. Well, with respect to the... Again, I would have to answer that the most influential view espoused by Marxists today is absolute impoverishment for the third world countries. But... Uh, they don't. Uh, obviously, they can't go around talking about this in New York City. <laughs> yes. Uh, you said uh, that Mark's view was that the surplus value
1: is of the businessman at the, uh, by exploiting workers. If the businessman had a law, would the workers exploiting him? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, The question is, if the businessman had a loss, uh, would the workers be exploiting him? According to Marx, it is the job of the capitalist under capitalism to accumulate as much surplus value as possible. Uh, According to a complex form, which he called the organic composition of capital, which I can't get into, but by which he tries to get as much out of the worker as possible rather than out of the constant capital which he puts in rather than the wages. So that it is the employer's fault if anything goes wrong. It's certainly not the worker's fault. If the employer is not making enough and he goes out of business, that's his problem. He he just hasn't exploited them enough, Marx says. Uh, uh, He hasn't been been evil enough and this is one of the reasons why we have to change over to socialism. Uh, let me see if I can... There, uh, yes? Would you go over again that relationship between the private
1: property complex and social planning in the second
0: of the Well, we have a, a more productive economic system. Strangely enough, Uh, in order to make it work right, we have to make the property ownership system as collective as the factory management system. We've got to make it Prussian, in other words, and orderly. You see, inside the factory all is order. Outside the factory all is chaos. Factory firm competes against firm. We've got to stop Having these firms competing against firms and have Prussian order all over the place. Yes.
1: Uh, how did Lawrence, uh, how would he How do you account for the value of certain things that might not require a lot of labor, yet they'll have value, such as oh. furs or vintage wine?
0: <coughs> Professor Eastman, you perhaps you know something about this. The, what about the value of diamonds and furs and things that you come on accidentally and do not add your labor to? I think
1: the general explanation for that would actually be that he's talking about the average case, what we call socially necessary labor, not where you pick up a diamond accidentally with no labor, but uh, usually to get that diamond, people have to be laboring thousands of hours in the mine, and uh, that would be the average. But there are cases where he just has no answer. How can he explain the value of land on the camp? How does he explain why skilled labor is more valuable than unskilled labor? He really has no explanation of that. And the whole theory broke the down uh, in connection, uh, his, his theory implied that, uh, let us say, the value of a 30-year-old model of Scottish should be the same as a one year old colleague because they both have the same labor. But there are all kinds of cases where you can show that goods with the same labor content have a permanent difference in value. And Ricardo you really know, laid these all out, and Paul Robert developed them, and that's the substance of Paul Robert's book, Karl Marx on the Close of His System. And then Marx tried to claim his last ditch defense was well, on the average, Goods exchange in accordance with the quantity of labor. There are cases where they exchange for more than in proportion to the labor, but equally as many in which they exchange for less than in proportion to the quantity of labor. And Roboter replied, but on that basis, we could say that goods exchange in proportion to their specific gravity. Or atomic numbers, because we always have so many positive (laughs) (laughs) examples. And that thing that Marxism has. Dislodged from the economic theory in the Western world. There are very few, there, there are no Marxists, qua Marxists, uh, who have any prestige in economics in the Western world uh, since that
0: time.
1: Was Marx lionized by others than Engels? He had enjoyed some kind of a social acceptance among a certain class?
0: Well, of course, the radical uh, working men and uh, everyday socialists uh, thought of Marx as the guy who had the theory. This is a, a very important thing. If you have a well-established, apparently consistent theory, which explains what somebody wants to be true... Uh, uh, you have it made, so to speak, and of course of course, you are lionized, of course you are regarded as the prophet, so to speak. P R O P A G E T. <laughs> the gentleman in the red shirt.
1: Could you explain again how Marx is trying to stay on the perceptual level in its period value, other than that the uh, all labor is physical? There was, some other, there
0: was some other aspect to his attempting to remain on the perceptual level. Well, no, a person... Will I explain? The question is, will I explain how Marx stayed on the perceptual level in his theory of value other than merely in emphasizing manual labor over skilled labor? Is that right? Or, or, or rather, unskilled over skilled. Well... Another example would be uh, the demand which some people make today that the worker be allowed to make the whole product. The auto worker make the whole automobile so that he can see every bit of it and gain that satisfaction at having produced the whole product. And this is non-alienated labor, whereas the other is alienated labor. You know, Charlie Chaplin was a. Uh, 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 a Marxist, as you know. And have any of you ever seen the old film, Modern Times? Remember how he was, he was really alienated. He was in the factory and he had this great big pair of pliers and a, 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 a nut would go by every couple of minutes and he'd have, to, he'd have to tighten the nut. And the guy just stood there getting more and more alienated. And... Uh, 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 he rushed out on the street with this big pair of pliers. And he rushed down the street and a young lady came along with a nice square buckle on her belt. And so he went, up and went like that to her as she passed. And then, now here you get this second Marxist, piece of Marxist propaganda. As he ran down the street, uh, uh, suddenly a, a, a truck passed him and the truck had a long pole sticking out the back with a a danger flag on the end. And the flag fell off the truck. And uh, Charlie Chaplin, in his altruism, reached down and picked up the red flag and began waving it after the truck to try to attract the attention of the driver. Meanwhile, a bunch of revolutionaries came around the corner behind him uh, and there Charlie was uh, 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 waving the flag. And so he was arrested for a subversion as a result of this. Well, this sort of, this sort of, uh, uh, is the way in which this concept of alienation has entered into the arts. I mean, I got a little bit sidetracked there, would you go? Well, I was
1: referring to his theory of value. Maybe he said something about when you exchange like shoes for bread then he can't, he sees it as irrational. And, uh, I don't know, you said something about the perceptual, he wants to keep it on the perceptual
0: level. Well, when I make a whole bunch of products, and my intention is not to use these products, suppose that I make 2,600 pairs of shoes. Now, obviously... Uh, if I am staying on the perceptual level, I am not going to enjoy my creativity. I'm not going to enjoy my creativity to the same extent as if I had 20, uh, as if I had uh, uh, 52 feet and were able to use all these shoes. Now, so far as the value is concerned, the use value would be what would accrue to me if I could use all these shoes. The exchange value. Uh, is merely uh, the fact that I am producing this for commodity transactions. The exchange value is therefore something which requires thought, that I have to rise above the perceptual level in order to figure out that other people besides myself are going to need shoes. And so, but when I do rise above this perceptual level, I get alienated. Uh, and so it's an agony to rise above the perceptual level. Yes? Who edited uh, Capital two and three that were done many years
1: after Marx's death? Well, uh, Engels. Uh,
0: uh, uh, the question is, in the case of yes. Volume two and Volume three of Capital that were done many years after Marx's death, uh, who edited them? Now, Engels... Uh, edited Volume Two, and I can't remember at the moment who edited Volume Three. But Volume Three came out just one year, I think, after Engels' death. Do you happen to remember, Dr. Eastman, who edited the third volume of Capital?
1: I think it was Engels, and a few years ago they even compiled a fourth volume in Russia, edited by unknown.
0: worked for Klaus like Karl Marx so many years. <laughs> uh, that's what was the for his. What was the for Engels Marx, Marx uh, uh, Engels was committed to the basic theory of revolutionary socialism. He was convinced that Marx was the guy who was able to think it out. He himself was a much better writer than Marx, but he saw that Marx had the greater power of abstraction. And therefore, because because of this, uh, he took the position number two and uh, kept supporting him. Uh, He got very angry with him sometimes. Once uh, uh, he reported to him that uh, the uh, lady, he sent a letter to Marx saying that the lady that he, Engels, was living with had just died. Uh, And uh, Marx wrote back, too bad, can you send me some more money? And this caused this caused a rift of about two weeks between them.
1: <laughs>
0: Any more questions? Yes.
1: How did Mark's wife put up all his follies? Okay.
0: She didn't focus. <laughs> That's really the truth. I mean, she, she just did not see. She, she, she wrote, as a matter of fact, she wrote a little autobiography uh, in which she told about all the misery that she had gotten into since she had married Marx. The Soviets edited this thing and they took out all the juicier pages, so we don't know really what else, what other facts there are here. Uh, yes.
1: I just, um, it seems to me like that there are a lot of psychological confessions of Marx and here. For example, it could have been that he was speaking for himself when he said that raising above his own perceptual level alienated him. Can you comment on that and perhaps bring in some other things that you've observed? Well,
0: could I comment upon the fact that Marx had said that he was staying on the perceptual no, level? No, 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 that it could have been
1: a psychological confession of, him, of his own that he brought into his philosophy example,
0: that racing above the perceptual level could have alienated him actually instead of... Well, if alienated him, he did have to work for a living. Uh, that's what alienated him. Uh, he wanted to, to be having s- his strange idea of fun all the time. Just let me give you one example of his idea of fun. He once went on a long pub crawl. Now this is a real honest to goodness pub crawl where you drink as much as you can in every place where you uh where you uh, stop from one end of London to another and every pub that he went into he started denouncing the British workers uh for their their, their inferiority to German workers denouncing English culture for its inferiority to German culture and as he would go from one from one uh, pub to another, he would throw stones uh, and break the streetlights all along the way. The, so, the, the really, the only property that uh, uh, Marx actually physically destroyed was public property, which is very strange uh, for a socialist. <laughs> uh. One more question? Yes, Linda. Yes, um, one of the
1: materialism
0: exactly how use it he mean that his idea of a dialect a dialogue is white I, of course, I don't think I've used that term uh, so far uh, dialectical materialism was a term thought up by a Russian Marxist philosopher named Plekhanov uh, to refer to Engels' system uh, and not to Marxist but it is important and it's implicit in Marx and I'd like to reserve it until then, until the next lecture okay thank you